0: Programming note This episode was recorded prior to the George Floyd murders and the subsequent civil unrest. While Dr. Mobley does not directly address these issues because it had not happened yet, his experiences with other critical incidences and the murders of unarmed. Black men are addressed in this episode and are certainly transferable to the George Floyd murder and the subsequent civil unrest. Hello. For 10 years, I've spent time as a professional speaker telling the stories of college students and others and helping them to find ways to thrive in white environments. Today, we tell the story of multiple generations. Being the Dot is a space for people of color established with the goal of sharing stories from survival to success that will resonate, inspire, and move us. I am Dr. Stacy Pearson Wharton, aka Dr. Stacy, and I am your host, a licensed psychologist, professional speaker, diversity training, and I have lived and worked and learned and survived and thrived in white spaces for a long time. So today's topic, where were you when the space shuttle blew up? And maybe 9-11 or during the pandemic or when JFK was killed. We all remember these events because they were critical in their nature and a shared experience. One might even add a shared trauma. Now there are those events and then there are our events. The black, to the black, black, black ones. The killing of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. When Roots came on TV. The O.J. Simpson murder trial verdict. Rodney King. Uh, and the disturbance that happened in L.A. afterwards. Trayvon Martin. The Black Panther movie. The elections of Barack Obama. And the election of Donald Trump. Hurricane Katrina. The day after the Ahmad Arbery video was released. Critical share trauma but not everybody has the trauma in the same way race and racism play a role in the salience of an event today's topic is the day after so what happens when you have to go back into a white space or you're actually in a white space as a dot in the event where this black event happens our guest today has been a Black man all his life and has had the unique experiences of a lot of different day afters. We're gonna talk with him about how he preps to go back into the environment, being in the space and how to cope and manage and thrive in spite of it. Dr. Michael Mobley is an associate professor at Merrimack University and director of the Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program. He has served as an administrator and educator in the academy for over 30 years and taught at University of Missouri-Columbia, Rutgers University, and Salem State University. Dr. Mobley has been recognized for excellence in teaching at almost every university where he has served. Nationally, Dr. Mobley has served as the president of the Society for Counseling Psychology of the American Psychological Association, and elected to its finest honor a fellow. He was also elected to a fellow of the American Psychological Association's Division 44, Society for Psychological Study of Culture, Ethnicity, and Race. He has written over 15 journal articles and referee journals, which is a hard feat, 10 book chapters and two book reviews. Dr. Mobley has given over 150 national, state, and regional conference presentations. He is currently a member of the American Psychological Association, the Massachusetts Psychological Association, Massachusetts and Rhode Island Association for Counselor Education and Supervision, the American Counseling Association, and the current president of the Council of Masters in Psychology Training Programs. He is also on the editorial board of the Journal of Black Psychology. Dr. Mobley received a master's at Temple University and a bachelor's in architectural engineering at Penn State University. And he received his Ph.D. in counseling psychology at the Pennsylvania State University. He has worked and lived in white spaces since high school. Look forward to hearing his story today and having him talk today about the day after so, fellow daughters, please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Mobley to the podcast today. Woo! Applausing around.
1: Hi, Doctor Hi, Dr. Dr. Stacy. How are you?
0: So I thought a good place to anchor our conversation is to talk a bit about yourself and some of the white spaces that you've encountered in both in your life and maybe in your career trajectory. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think one of the earliest white spaces that stands out for me is going off to a boarding school, to West Town School in Westtown, Pennsylvania. Um, I grew up in Chester, Pennsylvania. At the time, it was fairly mixed, but I certainly knew it as a black space because most of my friends were black. Uh, most of my classmates were black in middle school. Um, as well as high school, especially high school. Most of the high school students were black. But after 10th grade, I went and transferred to a boarding school, Westtown Board of School, which is a Quaker school, and that's when I moved more so into a predominantly white space. Yes, you, you know, they had their efforts of recruiting students of color, but there were just maybe a couple of tablefuls of us at that school. Um, And so it then opened my eyes to how other white people live, particularly more wealthy white people, Um, meaning, you know, doing their vacations or even in their conversations with their parents. They were talking about how, oh, mom was over in France this week or she's traveling here. And I'm thinking, oh, my mom is at home working, you know. (laughs) Um, So I start to understand not only race in terms of white culture, but also socioeconomic class. It even more powerful because... When they talked about taking the winter break or spring break, they were often traveling internationally. I knew I was going home for the break to reconnect with family and friends at home. Uh, So that's one of the close, the, the initial white space. Then the second largest white space would be going to Penn State as an undergraduate. And so this was 1993. soon after I left Westtown School, I went to Penn State University. So contextually, in my 12th grade class, there were 100 of us in the class. Um, And of the 100 of us in the class, in my particular year, there probably were no more than five of us Black students in that experience. In fact, one of my fellow classmates, African-American classmates, is this gentleman named Arturo Bagley, who his mother is Edith Bagley, who is the sister of Karata Scott King. And because of that relationship, Coretta Scott King actually spoke at our graduation ceremony due to Arturo's, you know, being part of our class. Um, So, yeah.
0: Dr. Mobley, what about your time at Penn State? Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Oh, yes. A massive state university in central Pennsylvania, um, Happy Valley, as some called it. It wasn't happy for a lot of black folks, you know. Um, and I'll never forget we had less than 800 Black students show up that year in 1983 among a class of like 32,000. And inevitably, for whatever reasons, the forces that were operating, most of us as Black students were placed in East Halls, which are residence halls that are often 10, 12 stories high. So of course we cradled, we quickly felt like we were being placed in the ghetto in terms of the high-rise building, high-rise building. And we always used the expression of what does it feel like to be raisins in a bowl of milk at Penn mm. You know, there's <laughs> less than 800 of us at 32,000. You know, we, we just like sprinkles. and Sure, a bowl of milk. sure. Um, so that, that was a unique white space um, being in there.
0: So what about in your trajectory, in your career trajectory, or the other places that you've lived since that time that you found yourself um, and being the, being the raisin in a bowl of milk or being the dot mm. in uh, uh, white spaces?
1: Well, you know, certainly while being at Penn State for, I did my undergraduate at Penn State, but also um, did my PhD at Penn State. And in between, I actually went to Temple University for my master's. And there was such a tremendous contrast in terms of being in North Philadelphia and just moving around in the greater Philadelphia area where I can go out to a restaurant and see all types of diverse folks, but clearly black folks.
0: Sure. So just for our listeners who don't know the context of North Philadelphia, North Philadelphia is the cut. And so it is it is where our folks live. Um, it is predominantly an African-American area, um, maybe sprinkled with some folks who identify as Latino. Um, or Latina or Latinx, and so it is. So you go from rural Pennsylvania almost to being—I don't know—you yes. were the raisin in the bowl of milk to what?
1: Um, to being—I uh, don't—I haven't thought about that analogy. Mm-hmm. Just amongst other folks of color. So just this plain and simple amongst other folks of color, where black folks were most visible in North Philadelphia, um, and it. It, it, the contrast really hit me really hard because I, would, I had my partner who was still in state college. And so when I would go and visit him and we would sit in like Eaton Park restaurant or Shakey's or something, I look around the room in the restaurant and see all these white people. And I feel like, oh, my God, I'm no longer in Philadelphia. OK. Um, and then I couldn't wait to get back to Philadelphia because it's a different level of comfort, I think, that I experienced in terms of being in those spaces that became very clear as I moved back and forth.
0: Could you unpack that for us a little bit?
1: Um, so while, yeah, you know, obviously, so North Philadelphia also was known for having a lot of high crime rates and drug rates and so forth. And when I went to Temple for my master's, I was a resident director, meaning I lived in the halls and supervised RAs and so lived there in North Philadelphia. I remember in our training session as professionals we were told to not leave anything in our cars because even the smallest thing might be stolen or invite someone to steal in our car. And sure enough, that one first week of training, I look outside of my dorm apartment and I see these two black youth starting to go into my 81 Ford Escort station wagon. And I just bang on the window and say, hey, get away from my car. And then I'm thinking, what did they want? Because I didn't have anything in there. I did what the folks told me to do, take everything out. I had a pair of jumper cables in my car. And I was later told that they could get $5 for those jumper cables. Um, So while there is some discomfort there in terms of having to monitor yourself for, you know, crime and so forth, and I even had drugs coming through my dorm room. I knew them to do the dorm building. You know, that's just what's the nature of it. But I felt still more comfortable and navigating those spaces than being in a predominantly white space where I didn't know when I might be subject to racism, right? So that was the qualitative difference. Um, Being in a restaurant in State College amongst all these white folks, my sensitivities were, okay, when might someone look at me as if I don't belong? Whereas being in North Philadelphia, I knew I fit, fit in with the rest of the folks in the community and the culture uh, although there may be issues with crime and so forth, but that I know I can manage and navigate. So I think those are the two differences in terms of how I felt um, at an interpersonal level, in terms of comfort, particularly around race.
0: Sure. Well, it's, it, it's interesting. Um, I asked your question, now I'm chasing a bunny rabbit, but whatever, that it, it's about your shared, the crime piece of being potentially a, a victim of crime. It's a shared experience that you have with everyone that has nothing to do about who you are.
1: That's correct. And and I'm I'm so glad you said that because you remind me that there was a white female who was also amongst us as professional staff. And she didn't heed the director's feedback and she left a suitcase and several other things. And another white male's car and his car got completely vandalized. They broke out the windows and everything, and she lost jewelry and clothes and all this stuff. So it, the crime doesn't discriminate based on the color of your skin. It's just a matter of opportunity for those folks who are in need, right? And so I could, I could manage that. It didn't seem like that was a personal attack on me as a black person. Mm-hmm. So yeah.
0: when we read your bio earlier, it talked about you being at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and then, um, and Rutgers, and then, um, and now where you currently are, would you identify yourself as being a dot in white spaces in any of those um, situations?
1: Um, certainly what's a dot in white spaces at Missouri, um. Partially at Rutgers in New Brunswick, not at all in Salem State University because Salem State um, has like a 33, 35 percent student of color uh, background. But then look amongst the faculty, there's still what's white in terms of my uh, professional colleagues and peers. And now at Merrimack, again, it's certainly a dot in the white spaces because Merrimack Um, It's a younger institution and has fewer students of color. So if I think about on a professional level and being amongst colleagues, being a black person among mostly predominantly white colleagues, there's been numerous challenges there (laughs) in terms of our perspectives and the way um, that my white colleagues have perceived me. Um, I know in your opening, you talked about the OJ. Simpson um, event and trial. And you know, that was during my PhD training at Penn State. And I had a white lesbian, female supervisor. Um, soon, within a day or two after that verdict came down, um, she and I walked over to the hub to get some to drink during the supervision, and she would just ask me what my reactions were to the verdict, you know, to OJ getting off. And I immediately sensed some discomfort, even though I liked this woman and I valued her as an individual. Um, Mary is her first name. Um, I Something told me it wasn't safe to honestly say what I thought. And I think to the best of my memory, I knew that we had a scheduled like town hall amongst the doctoral program to talk about folks' reactions to that. And I've already heard that some of the white females in that community space were upset by the verdict. And I wasn't so much upset by the verdict. I thought, okay, maybe he did it. Maybe he didn't. He's been found not guilty. That's our criminal justice system at work. You know, perhaps they needed a better defense, you know, you know, offense or whatever. But I didn't know for sure whether he did it or not. And at that moment, I think it didn't matter so much to me whether there was an injustice that had occurred within this criminal justice system, which inherently always seems to not benefit black and brown folks.
0: Right. But I right. knew I
1: could not say that sincerely to Mary because <laughs> I could tell that she was upset by the verdict. Um, so I felt like I was walking on eggshells with her in that experience. Um, but so that's one way to n- navigate being in phenomenally white spaces is I monitor how much I really allow myself to be transparent to avoid any contentious, you know, interactions with folks, particularly those who are supervising me and have power over me, as she did. Um, so... Yeah, so that that's one experience, and you mentioned Rodney King. It's interesting that Rodney King has salience for me in terms of when that incident occurred, and I saw it on the news.
0: Where were you in your Where were you living at that moment?
1: So I was living again another predominantly white space. Even though I was I was in Philadelphia, I was at um. got why am blocking on name the college? I was in St. Miguel Court at LaSalle College. So I was a master's student at Temple, but I had transferred and got a job at LaSalle College as a resident director. And I was resident director of this um, closed, gated townhouse community for mostly upper class students, most of them all white, living behind this gated fence community. Um, And while I was there at St. Miguel, I typically would go out with my friend Derek and Juanita for dinner. One Friday night, I was so excited about getting off grounds. I'm not on duty. I go to my car, again, that same station wagon. And as I get to my car, I see these cops circling around in the parking lot. And I thought, Michael, you're not on duty. Just keep walking to your car. So I walk to my car. By the time I get to my car and I go to put my keys into the door, because there was no automatic locks here, um, I say to this police officer, put your hands up, put your hands up. And I look back and I'm thinking, what's happening? And they're like, put your hands up. And I'm like in shock, but I'm thinking, oh, say, you must be making a mistake. I'm starting to talk back to the officer and say, I'm not sure what's going on here. But, and I still didn't put my hands up. So they bum rushed me and pushed me against the car and told me to put my hands up. So I finally did. And at this time, I said, well, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on here, but you must be making a mistake. I said, my name is Michael Mobley. I'm the resident director at St. Miguel Court. And it's like they're not even listening to me. And so a few minutes go by, and then this um, cop wagon comes up, and they sort of walk me, I guess from watching all the TV, we can call it a perp walk, right? They walk me over to this van, and inside the van is this white female, and I see her putting her, like, right hand above her head and shaking no, almost to indicate that, no, this the guy who attacked me was taller. And that this is not the guy. He was taller. So then they take me back over to my car, and they're asking for ID. And in the meantime, the LaSalle police, you know, campus police had come up. And they're now observing all this going on and I'm trying to get their attention, but they don't really know me because I just started working there like within the last like month or two. So they don't recognize me again, a black man on their campus who they haven't met. So they're not interceding to help me. And I'm saying the name of my boss. I'm saying the name of the director asking the call and no one does anything. So I'm feeling somewhat helpless. Um, And then next thing you know, they do handcuff me and they take me downtown to the, well, to a police station um, there in the community. And I'm thinking.
0: They're downtown.
1: Yeah, they're downtown. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. It was like I was on my way to um, the seafood place, Red Lobster. That's where I was on my way to Red Lobster. And all of a sudden I find myself at this police station. And then they're wanting to go through my pockets because I still hadn't shown them any ID and I'm saying, you can't force me to show you an ID. And then I realized, oh, I don't want them going through my pockets. They might find stuff that I don't want them to find. And so I hear these two officers talking, and one of them says, oh, we have one of these intelligent ones here. He doesn't want to, like, listen to us. And so in this time, they hit me up against the wall in the police station next to this, like, um, window, I guess, where they, you know, I don't know, register you in or whatever. It was just so foreign. And I did go into a jail cell for a period of time. um, And I had to call the university and then they let me out. But all of that to say that from that incident, I had a court date that I needed to show up to the hearing because they had charged me with assaulting an officer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They charged me five feet six, probably 135, 40 pounds at the time as assaulting officer one officer was white. The other officer was a Latino, Hispanic guy. So the morning that I'm supposed to show up for this hearing about this case where I've been charged with assaulting an officer is the morning that the Rodney King incident came through on the television. Whoa. Wow. So I get up and I see that and all of a sudden I'm just alarmed and I'm triggered and I'm like, yeah, that's the way black folks are treated in our society. And so I go off to court that morning and the judge, a white judge stands there and he reads the charges and he looks at me and he looks at the officer and he says, you're telling me that this like short black guy assaulted you who weighs probably like 230, 240 pounds. And, I don't had, believe a gun. It. and, and had a gun. And so the judge says, I don't believe you. And he just dismissed the case. So, but nonetheless, I still was terrified because I of course you were quickly see how the justice system can, you know, really ignore what you're saying to police officers and just make these false assumptions. Even when the witness says, no, that's not him. they had already committed themselves such that I guess they felt like they needed to take me downtown. So I was pissed and I'm needless to say.
0: So, 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 so let's, can we dissect that a yeah, little bit? Yeah, sure. Okay, first of all, let me just say this. That is that is almost breathtaking, given the amount of video that we have about unarmed black men. Yes. And police. And and so um, it, I just need to kind of acknowledge that.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because this would have been in 1991, uh-huh. I believe. And... Cell phones one is pro- prevalent then.
0: Of course, of course. So yeah. yeah. So the only thing I believe that the experiences of these black men have they they that I don't know that there's been necessarily an increase in them as much as that we have them on tape. That's because right. without without the video, the Aubrey, Aubrey Ahmad case would still be undercover. Absolutely. All right, so let's just roll back just for a second. So tell me about the day after. So you're arrested. They hold you in the jail. Your whole night is ruined. But at some point you had to go back to work or you had to go back into that white dorm that you, that you worked. So can you, can you remember at all? I know it was a long time ago, Yes. but do you have any memories of what that was like for you and how you managed it?
1: You know, Part of my memory, it, it's not clearly uh, um, tangible, but when you raise the question, I, I what I can remember is feeling unsafe, not s- sort of protected in this new predominantly white community. Meaning again, those LaSalle police officers were on the scene, they heard me say that I work for the residential life. My name is Michael Mobley. I have university ID in my left pocket. They did not intercede. So I felt let down by that campus community. Um, I, there was a moment when I thought, oh, should I try to you know, get a lawyer? And then I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to get through my second year of grad school. I'm thinking about PhD program. I don't have the energy to really try to take this on legally. Um, But I certainly know I was very disappointed in the university and certainly the residential life and then those police officers who were on the scene. Um, But I think probably as most black men who would have these types of encounters, I had to keep doing what I needed to do, you know? And having a family system, coming from a family environment, where certainly my mom was concerned and worried about me, she didn't have the capacity to wage a war, you know, to come up to the campus or, you know, call on any like legislature, you know, representative, of anything.
0: Get Jesse Jackson there. Get Jesse Jackson there, yes. <laughs>
1: um, so I had to continue moving forward with life, you know. Um, but it was startling to wake up that day of the hearing and see the Rodney King incident on television that morning.
0: Wow, I can't even fathom that.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: Are there other critical incidences that come up for you as you think about the day after? Um,
1: Well, you know, Trayvon Martin um, Mm -hmm. was really challenging, um, because I've been at University of Missouri Columbia for 11 years as a faculty. So i had been into St. Louis, some of the communities there and suburbs there, even though I spent more time in Kansas City. Um, so I got to know some folks from the St. Louis area through uh, my connections in um, Missouri. Um, and just recognizing he was such a young male and his life was taken by, you know, Zimmerman for no reason whatsoever. That that really hit me hard. Um, thinking about my own nephews um, that are back in my hometown, and what if it had been one of them? Um, and it happened at a time where I was also in leadership in Division Seventeen, um, which is the Society of Counseling Psychology within the American Psychological Association. Um, and being, I think I was either president-elect or president. Um, But being in that role of, again, this predominantly white society, um, that recalled on me to not only try to support other folks of color, and black folks in particular, but also to support the whole entire community, the community as counseling psychologists. And there was a lot of reactions, of course, going off in the community and that people were posting online and so forth. And... You know, one of my fellow leaders, this white male, um, responded in a way online that really caused this flame to burst. Um, And that folks were responding out of concern and compassion to Trayvon Martin and wondering why these things keep happening. And his response in the stream of those different posts was something to the effect of, well, I don't understand why more people aren't talking about um, what's happening internationally and the rights around military and the human rights issue as it relates to um, torture. And so he interjects that into this conversation about Black Lives Matter, and all of a sudden people are just pissed. And he's another officer. I mean, he's like president-elect. So we're in this little trio um, where I'm president. He's president-elect. And and so all of a sudden, you know, I'm working. I have a busy day. But I keep seeing these emails pop in. And then people are calling me on the phone. And I'm like, why is all this activity? And the next thing I know, I got to the listserv. And I saw that this conversation was happening. And that, yes, it had blown up because Jim had decided that he wanted to interject about torture and why we're concerned about human rights. And so I knew I needed to respond and respond in a way, because a couple of black women in particular had emailed me individually and, and then my fellow interns from 1996, 97 had called me on the phone, like, Michael, what's going on? So, you know, when you're in a- Do
0: <laughs> yeah, something! Exactly. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. So uh, can, I, can I just lay it out just for absolutely. a second? So we have this tragic thing happen to this young man, right, uh, Trayvon Martin. And not too long after, it seems like it, the Michael King incident had happened in St. Louis, in the state that you live, right? And, and so people are empathizing with this young man being hunted down and killed by a white man. And a white fragility pops up. And in a way to deal with white fragility, the conversation is oftentimes diverted or sometimes what Moore Cullen calls perfectly logical explanations, PLEs. But, but that something happens to try to divert the conversation, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. And then, of course, and then people of color end up feeling even more misunderstood, incensed, more dotish in white spaces, uh, if you will, if that's not a word, but we're just going to go with it okay. today. Uh, and, and you are the leader of this organization. Yes. He is also a leader, but you are a leader of this organization. So you're having your own reaction Yes. to tra- to the whole situation. Absolutely.
1: And I need to sort of be myself in terms of my own emotional reactions to other black men's lives and black women's lives being lost, being taken. And also support members of the community who are hurting, who are in pain, while also trying to stay, uh, I don't know, connected to Jim in a way that is supportive of him as a human being. But yet saying you're wrong at this time, you know, that you cannot dictate or assume that we who are in pain about the loss of Black men and Black women also don't con- don't concern ourselves about national human rights issue or torture issue. However, that's not the point at this moment. So we're gonna stay right. in the moment. And
0: don't go to the breast cancer event talking about colon that's cancer. Exactly right. It's the breast cancer event. That's exactly event. <laughs>
1: right. And so I, I found something in me to put something out in the list for the serve and really own it myself. And inviting Jim to, you know, talk to me if he needed to. So, so that way, I I guess, served as a, I don't know, look at some it's coming in between that and trying to get him to engage with me, as opposed to continuing to put out information there that was pissing people off, basically. Um, and so, yeah, that that was that sort of experience. And we, I, to his credit, we continued to have dialogues throughout that several months afterwards and in fact because it was my presidential year and when we have mid-year meeting as the president you get to define what type of um, work the executive board's going to do. And so what I decided we would do is that we're going to have a open difficult dialogue around Black Lives Matter about you know those incidents that occurred um, and and where we each stood in relationship to that experience. And, and, and so that we can not just ignore the elephant in the room when we came together in January. And so that was a meaningful conversation. And I specifically asked some of our elders, um, Louise Dows, Rosie uh, Davis Phillips, um, and I believe um, Tanya Israel and one other leader um, to facilitate that dialogue because they currently weren't on the board and they could come in to help us. As, had been
0: on the board previously. Right, had been on the board
1: previously. Um, I think all of them, except like for Tanya had.
0: So the, interest, the interesting piece to this, as I, as I hear you talk, Michael, is uh, there are a couple of themes here. Uh, the first is your, your awareness of how white people are responding mm. to your reaction. Yeah, And so both in the case of uh, the, the colleague that you talked, the supervisor, you talked about at Penn State after the O.J. Simpson uh, verdict. And then this colleague, Jim, after um, he had stepped in the multicultural pool, if you will, mm. um, trying to make a space for him as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and even as well in your um, in the in your interaction with the police not wanting them to over respond because at that point you're trying to get out alive
1: yes yes without harm and i think that's um accurate that you're picking up on in terms of i think how i um sort of live in the world Mm. um in that I know that I have to be aware of how white folks are behaving at any given time Mm to assess what level of harm or danger might be in the environment for me. It's just Mm -hmm. that simple. That's right.
0: So where were you when Barack Obama was elected uh, president of the United States in
1: 2008? I was living in... New Jersey. Okay, so you were at Rutgers at the time. I was at Rutgers. Uh I was watching on the television and just elated when Uh he was brought into office. And then I quickly talked to my friend in D.C., Virginia and went to the inauguration.
0: Right. So would you describe, how would you describe the day after for you uh, of Barack Obama being elected and Donald Trump being elected?
1: Oh, geez. <laughs> well, one, emotionally, I was on an emotional high after Barack Obama was elected. <laughs> you know, thinking I would never see this in my lifetime a black man elected to the president of the United States. Um, and just, you know, talking with family and friends the night before and that day, it, it it was just wonderful, absolutely wonderful to begin to imagine the difference that he could make, not only in the office of the presidency. But in being a role model to so many black sure. and brown kids mm-hmm. in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just wonderful. When Trump was elected and he and Hillary lost,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I emphasize where Hillary were, lost.
0: She did. Now where were you doing that time?
1: I was here in Massachusetts. Okay. In Salem, Massachusetts, at Salem State University. Okay. I was teaching an African-American psychology class Mm -hmm. that had probably 18 to 19 students, the majority of them being women of color. Mm. And when I stayed up all night just to see the results and I was depressed, um, just could not believe that this was the outcome of this election and really traumatized. And I thought, ah, I don't have the energy to go to the class today, to go to that campus today. But then I thought, oh, my God, I have to teach African-American psych today. And then I thought, oh, the students, those Black women in the class are probably hurting. So I needed to go to campus to support the students in that class. I may have had a graduate class that night or something, but I wasn't thinking so much of the graduate students. I was thinking of the undergraduate students. Again, given that Salem State is um, a campus where 35% of the students are students of color, um, U.S. racial and ethnic minorities um haitian dominican uh, brazilian they have a number a large number of immigrant populations that have been a part of the greater boston community for decades um so i felt like i needed to muster some capacity in my own sort of mental space to be there for them sure um yeah
0: nice So are there other critical incidents? I have some specific ones I want to ask you about, but are there other critical incidences that you think about where I was that were sailing around your race and ethnicity, your racial ethnic identity that come up for you?
1: Hmm. Let me think about that for a moment. Um. I, I know you mentioned nine eleven, but that one—the only salience that has for me is um, that was one of our peers from Penn State mm-hmm. uh, counseling mm-hmm. psych program who mm-hmm. lost her brother. Yes. Um, yes, and so I remember that. Um,
0: it's interesting because that's one of those things that there's the shared experience that's happening to everybody, right? Versus. This, the, uh, something that's happening to you because of your, that has happened that has sailing because of your identity.
1: Right. In terms mm-hmm. of community membership and yeah, belonging yeah. to the Thank black you. community. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, so that had sailing for me because I was wondering who else might I know.
0: Yes, of course.
1: Um, may have been lost. And then the other piece is that I had just been in one of the towers, like, less than a year ago, and that May, I was in the tower for a French graduation ceremony. The first time I've ever been in the tower. Wow. Um, and then to see those buildings fall in September was like, wow. You know, so that that brought on the personal scale, having been in one of the tire, I mean, towers just early that summer.
0: What would Dr. Mobley say to Michael Mobley? Um, about living in white spaces? What's the one piece of advice? First and foremost,
1: um, as a black male, you have to feel centered in who you are, a sense of integrity um, while you're pursuing your goals, but be ever mindful that racism is alive and well.
0: So in mixed company we don't we don't have conversations like this. But what's yeah. the one thing that if you could tell white America, whatever that is, or you would want white people to know about how to create inclusive spaces or how to be less racist towards people of color?
1: You know that, that that's a challenging question <laughs> because for white folks to be more inclusive, and uh, help create an equitable society. Um, they have to do a lot of work. That, that, it's On a, a personal level, on a personal level, they have to do a lot of work so that they might be able to see that um, the world isn't only um, what their experiences have been. So they have to step outside of their white spaces to engage with folks of color, black folks, to understand what our cultural norms values and what our beliefs are and what really motivates us. So that, that's one level to that in terms of what white, some white folks can do and, and, and many white folks are making an effort to do. I want to acknowledge that. Um, but when we talk about equity and we talk about inclusivity, I can't help but think about the dynamic of power and in, in the context of the United States. And, from a political perspective, white folks in power do not want to give up their power, okay? So I think the only way that we can truly move ever close to a society that's more equitable and inclusive is that we need to have more black and brown folks in those positions of our power who are making critical decisions about the direction of this country. Because, you know, at least from my perspective currently, Um, When I look at the Republican Party as a whole, and for the most part, they want to maintain their power and their way of maintaining power and, and, and supporting who they want to support. Oftentimes means they're not supporting black and brown folks. They're not supporting gay folks. They're not supporting poor folks. They're only looking out for the most wealthy in our society who happens oftentimes to be other white men. okay, and they're not going to give up that power. And the longer they're in power, then we'll never really have a more equitable and inclusive society. So I think we certainly as black folks, as folks of color need to put more folks like us in power, but we also need white folks to be woke or awake. And they also have to vote in ways that they're gonna put leaders in positions of power who are gonna also be um, aiming for inclusivity and equitable society. But I don't think we should wait for white folks, enough of white folks to get to that space in that time. Um, That's where we have to sort of build our own coalitions. Um, Certainly black folks, Latinx folks. um, I think we've reached the sort of a, a mass in the society where we can make a difference at the ballot. I have to go there, you know, we're in the election year. We have to make it, we have to make a difference at the ballot um, in terms of creating a more inclusive and equitable society. Because if Donald Trump should happen to win this next election, we're all in trouble. Okay, let me just say that we're all in trouble. Um, the man probably will never leave office. He will, you know, crown himself as king, and he will start to. When he says, "What to to black folks? What do you have to lose?" We have a lot to lose. We have our lives to lose. We don't want to find ourselves living in the plantation again. Okay?
0: Thank you for that. Are there any resources that you might recommend for um, uh, being a person of color and managing white spaces, uh, thriving in white spaces?
1: I don't know if there's any specific resource in terms of books or poetry or anything. I think the resource I would recommend is that we stay connected to people who are important to us, people who we value and engage in conversations. Um, And to the extent possible that we look to folks who are older than ourselves, who've had different experiences, who can help teach us some lessons in terms of the best way to protect ourselves. Um, Because books can only say but so much, but I think the lived experience that we can learn from one another it's far more invaluable.
0: That's really interesting because the oral tradition was so much a part of who we were as a people. And it seems like that's, that's gotten lost just a little bit. And so I, I love that you that what you're saying there. What's your personal motto?
1: Um, my personal motto, and I've had this for some time, is never let them see you sweat. <laughs> Meaning that I realized that there are a number of challenges um and things that I need to be able to do um, in order to be successful. And I use that word successful very broadly um, in terms of pursuing goals, uh, relationships, Um, and that we don't always have the answers and our plans don't always work out the way that we think they might work out. Um, But I'm a person that I want to have a plan A, B, and C, sometimes D, um, and so that I can pivot when I need to and adapt when I need to in terms of reaching a goal. Um, So that's one of the models. The other one is the serenity prayer, which is, you know, I need to be able to understand the things that I don't know, things that I can't see. Um, But that, that was that's the second one.
0: What's the one thing that our listeners would be surprised to know about you?
1: Hmm. One thing they would be surprised to know about me. i That's a hard question. <laughs> I hear you. you um, be surprised to know about me. Um, I, maybe that I make a great sweet potato pie.
0: we <laughs> are <laughs> done. Was there anything that you thought that I would ask that I didn't, that you want to speak on? You
1: know, there was something that you asked me about earlier, well, something in our conversation earlier, which reminded me of um, this concept that I had thought about and did some writing about a few years ago um, called oppressive latent identity. Oppressive latent identity. Um, And what I mean by that is that um, in being different into society, Uh, even as children, the moment that we begin to be aware of ways in which we're different than other people, those experiences really start to impact how we understand ourselves and how we see ourselves such that they become internalized. Um, They become a part of us. So for example, as a young black boy, one might grow up, And all of a sudden you're being called names or you feel like you're being victimized because of your race and people are taunting you. Um, Those things are being imprinted into our aspects of who we are, subsequently our identity. And for me, they're being imprinted onto this part of our identity that speaks to what it means to be oppressed in society. And so over time, I would theorize that black folks in this case, but this applies to women, I think it applies to LGBT folks, um, any aspect of difference. That over time, as black folks, those experiences that have been imprinted into us about having this, having, let's see how to say recognizing that our race is being perceived as being less than we understand what that means in terms of the interactions and treatments that we experience mostly from white folks. And that oppressive latent identity, latent oppressive identity rather, lives within us. And while we may mature in terms of understanding who we are as racial beings and how we might be able to fight for social justice, fight for civil rights, that latent oppressive identity is always still a part of who we are. And we can't really sort of exercise that out of our being. And so when we talk about race-based trauma, um, I think this latent oppressive identity gets sort of activated when we hear about these injustices and these tragedies that are happening to other Black folks in our society. And I know for me, you know, I can – when we talk about the racial identity models and going into Helm's model and and Parham talk about recycling, it's when I see such an injustice that I can get triggered and immediately tap into that anger um, that's been there for some time because I know that I'm not being treated – right, that I'm not being treated as a human being, I'm not being valued as a black person in our society. And so, particularly in, this is something I probably should write about more and do some interviews around myself, but you know, both with black men and black women, this mantra of being angry gets placed on us, you know, but I think as you talked about early, the cumulative race-based stress and trauma does you know, lead us to experience anger. And so that anger also lies within us. And sometimes, you know, we can control and manage that. And other times it's just like a a, a volcano reaction. Um, And so that's the other piece that I'm trying to think about in terms of what does that mean for our health and well-being in terms of recognizing that there's that place in us that we can immediately go to, when we're re-traumatized or re-victimized, that we may sometimes go to a place of anger, um, which is still healthy and, and, and just, but it may not serve us well in the
0: moment. This episode was edited by Caroline Bone. Special thanks to our podcast intern, Amanda Gillette. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by davisdeliciousdelights.com. davisdeliciousdelights.com custom-made personalized pastries, cakes, pies, and cookies made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit davisdeliciousdelights.com and use the coupon code BEINGTHEDOT for 20% off orders of $35.99 or more.